Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. This is a weekly episode in which we will be talking about the major events which happened in Ukraine last week. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. I'm talking to Tetyana Harkova, uh, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tan. Hello. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We sent a big amount of this support to help people affected by this war uh, and uh, to help Ukrainian resistance. We also travel a lot across Ukraine and you can see from our podcasts. Um, let me also remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine. So let's let's talk about this uh, this week. But the major, I think, major phenomenon of this week that we are marking the fourth uh, four months of the war uh, of this new Russian-Ukrainian war. So let us try to maybe summarize a little bit uh, what were the main trends or the main things we understood during this fourth months of this war. Uh, yes, indeed. So the 24th of uh, June, we mark the four months of this war. The war is still here, unfortunately. Uh, it is becoming a kind of a long war for Ukraine. We haven't seen a lot of changes in the, in the field, the battlefield. So the frontiers between occupied territories and Ukraine haven't changed dramatically, with the exception of this week when uh, Ukrainian troops, they finally left Severodonetsk. But let us explain how it happened. It happened because Russian army advances by destructing everything on in its way. So Ukrainian troops just had nothing to 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 protect no buildings just to be there and to keep the positions. So maybe the major major um, conclusion of these months is that Severodonetsk is over. It is under Russian occupation unfortunately for Ukrainian troops, but this was also the months where Ukrainian counterattack on the tactical level, started in the south. And it is becoming more and more evident that Ukrainian troops are trying to advance significantly in, in the south close to Kherson. This is not something very quick. This is not something very strategic at that very moment. But we see that Ukrainians, they have this strategic initiative in the south. At the same time, what we lost during these months, we lost the security situation in Kharkiv. Because we've seen that during these months, the Russian army advanced, in, unfortunately, in Kharkiv region. They approached the city and they are already able to, to shell uh, once again, once again, this second city in Ukraine by artillery systems. So Kharkiv, which was quite much more peaceful, everything is relative during the war. But uh, at that very moment, a month ago, Kharkiv was more or less secure place. Today, we are already speaking about eventual evacuation of children from Kharkiv and from elderly people. So the situation, let us sum up what's happening in military um, context. So things are not advancing quite good at that moment. Ukraine is still waiting for uh, military aid coming from Western areas. We had this third Rammstein uh, meeting of uh, dozens of uh, defense ministers. In, in This time it was in Brussels. 
And we are talking about new systems which are to arrive to Ukraine. Some of them are already in Ukraine, but at that very moment we cannot talk about a massive counter-attack of Ukraine, unfortunately. But at that moment we we can imagine that this counter-attack may start maybe in July or August. Indeed, and uh, as we keep on re- uh, repeating in our podcasts, uh, the information about the arrived weapons is good, but uh, Ukraine needs a much bigger scale, much bigger number. And therefore, it is very important uh, if the land lease, the American land lease, uh, and when the American land lease will, st- will start operating. Some people say it will, it will start in autumn. But um, uh, we have, all, of course, the, the information that some of the weapons like Hamar's uh, uh, multi-rocket artillery systems, launch, uh, multi-launch artillery systems are arriving. But uh, we still have a situation when the Russians have much more advantage in the air and uh, in the artillery. But let's, let's keep an eye on this, of course. The second big event of this week is uh, the formal decision of the European Council, the key leaders of the EU, to grant Ukraine a status of candidacy in the European Union, Ukraine and Moldova. What is why it is important in your in your opinion? Why this event is important? Yes, indeed, it is a kind of historical change for Ukraine because finally this is formal. This Ukraine has started its process of joining a European Union, even if we are in the very beginning. This is a clear, quite clear sign of European solidarity. And this visit, uh, which happened in previous week of uh, French president and um, German chancellor and it- Italian prime minister and uh, um, a representative of Romania was very, very important. So now what we have, we have a kind of so very strong a diplomatic solidarity with Ukraine because Ukraine has everything to start this negotiation process with the European Union. It will start, at, at least as uh, Ukrainian officials say, it will start by the end of this year and there were already changes and already steps on this way even before this official status of candidacy was granted to Ukraine. Ukraine has finally uh, ratified the Istanbul uh, Convention which is uh, about um, uh, domestic violence and which was waiting for this procedure legal procedure of ratification during for 10 years already in ukraine so ukraine is ready for reform and this is really something incredible when you see a country in a war which is making war and at the same time is ready uh, and capable to to provide reforms. This is important because it's also about the solidarity of old Europe. We were talking in our podcast several weeks ago about these peace plans coming from Italy. We were talking about uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, statements about saving the face of Russia or don't humiliate Russia. We were uh, also talking about Germany very slow procedures to deliver weapons to Ukraine, but now we see a kind of more solidarity coming from the old Europe, not only from Baltic states and um, Poland and Britain, but also from the um, countries of um, founders of the European Union. And this is important. And what was interesting about that event is the reaction of Russia. 
when uh, Vladimir Putin was asked about his reaction on Russia's reaction to this uh, um, this fundamental change, uh, his response was that we we had we have nothing against that. We we, we were never against uh, Ukrainian. Uh, participation in the European project, which is not true at all, because we all do remember that uh, Euromaidan seven years, uh, uh, eight years ago started, it, namely because uh, Yanukovych, the former president of Ukraine, refused um, to sign this association agreement with um, European Union. So for Russia, this is a kind of a huge diplomatic loss, and that's quite clear. Yes, but uh, the question is the question is what Ukraine needs more right now. Is it needed? Does it need uh, EU candidacy status, or it need more weapons? Uh, and uh, it, it's very important that Ukraine gets this symbolic uh, symbolic decision. But will it help uh, win the war? That's no. the question. That's the this question. Will not, but we need both. Yeah, I think that we need both because this is also a political signal to Vladimir Putin at the same time. And this is not about the battlefield. And uh, when France is delivering six Caesars more, it's clearly not enough. But uh, this information is public one. And we, are, we never know, in fact, during this war, how much our, uh, weapons really arrived to Ukraine because this is... A, could be kind of secret information, but what it means more engagement from the old Europe. Uh, I feel that it this uh, uh, this step means much more engagement from European side, and this is good sign for Ukraine. Even if even if tomorrow it will change nothing for Lysychansk, which is shelled permanently today, it will change nothing for any other city in Ukraine, which is unfortunately uh, bombed uh, quite often by missiles. Uh, but this is about future. This is about perspective. This is about also about this modern Ukraine and this choice, historical choice, which started during Euromaidan times. Let us come back and see that 10 years ago, ten, specifically 10 years ago, in 2012, our president, president was Viktor Yanukovych. Our country was not going at all to Europe. It, was, it had quite clear relationship with Russia, with Putin. Uh, the country was divided between many political parties and a huge part, significant part of these political parties were pro-Russian. Uh, and uh, there were no, no clear perspective. Now, 10 years later, we have a country which is 95, I don't know exactly, but 90-something percent against Russia, against Putin, for Europe. And having somebody who is either fighting in the front or helping army or volunteering for, for civil civilians or whatever. So this is a kind of a really uh, huge change just in 10 years. This is not the same country. And we still and we also have a lot of uh, people who sacrifice their lives to to, to achieve this objective, because let's uh, recall people from Euromaidan, the hundreds of people who, who were killed in uh, during Euromaidan, and then uh, thousands who lost their lives during these eight years of the war in Donbass. And now we are talking already about 10,000, about several thousand, dozens of thousands of people, civilians, 
most of all, but also military who lost their lives uh, during this war. And uh, the perspective is uh, clear, even if what we see on the ground now in Ukraine is extremely dramatic and even exhausting because the shellings, constant shellings, uh, the never-ending story and uh, the small progresses of uh, Russian army in Donbass is unfortunately still happening. I think one of the major differences, one of the major breakthroughs of this decision is that, well, uh, I mean, when we were talking about the membership perspective before, like a few years ago to the European Union. A European Union was saying that, look, you have the association agreement and that's it. First, you need to implement it and then we will see. And that was a, a point to say that, look, you are not in the enlargement policy. And I think that the, the idea of Eastern Partnership, which was uh, established in uh, three, four years after the Orange Revolution, I think it was 2007. That was, by the, by the way, the key years for me, 2007 and 2008, because this was the years when the European Union clearly said that it doesn't want to go beyond the, uh, the enlargement policy, which was at the same time. It was primarily the idea to get Balkans inside, and that's it, and stop on this. And Russia in 2007-2008, on the contrary, it was showing that it is going to expand, it is going to enlarge militarily. And therefore we had Putin's speech in Munich in 2007 and then, and then um, Russia's attack on Georgia in 2008. Right? Uh, so Eastern Partnership, despite all the good things, Eastern Partnership is the EU policy which encompasses six States very different: Eastern Europe, uh, Ukraine, Belarus, and Moldova, and um, South Caucasus, the Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Very different countries, and uh, it was kind of a kind of a decision to say, okay, we will integrate these countries, but without giving them a membership perspective. And of course, Ukrainians were very unhappy to be in the same basket with uh, authoritarian Belarus or with. Uh, kind of also non-so-much-democratic Azerbaijan, despite the fact that now uh, Azerbaijan is rather an ally, or Armenia, which was clearly pro-Russian and, uh, and, and saw Russia as the key ally in the region, well, for historical reasons, right? And, um, and Ukrainians were saying, okay, give us the membership perspective, and, and the Europeans would, were, were, were refusing to do that. And I think what happens symbolically is that this, what happened this week, this broke this kind of inertia of, of, of the European Union thinking that enlargement is over, that enlargement also concerns this, uh, this um, Western Balkans. Well, it doesn't all, all, enlargement policy was Western Balkans plus Turkey. Nobody's talking about tur uh, Turkey anymore, but about Western Balkans, right? So the EU is now saying, yes, it, it is retrieving its enlargement policy. It is ready to go beyond Western Balkans. It is ready to go to Eastern Europe. It is ready to go beyond its enlargement fatigue. It is ready to go beyond its basic statement uh, with Eastern Partnership policy that it will it will never enlarge. And I think 
This is very important thing. Yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced this is historical change, and many things we could not imagine four, year, four months, four months ago, they become our reality. So things are, are changing, and politically and diplomatically, and these diplomatic changes are positive for Ukraine. At the same time, maybe another important, uh, important issue, important conclusion of this month, is the implication of several countries around Russia. So first of all, let's say a couple of words about Kazakhstan and about this tension on the border with uh, Lithuania, um, this uh, Kaliningrad region. Russia is trying to to create some kind of tensions and real tensions because Lithuania is a NATO country. So let's start with Kazakhstan. What happened um, uh, previous week, during previous week, uh, their president, Mr. Takayev, was talking publicly uh, just... Uh, close to Putin, they were both leaders during the, at this international economic forum. Many leaders were, were invited there, but um, there were only Takayev and Putin. So there were no nobody else, even China. They just uh, sent a video, recorded video to, to participate in this conference. So when you talk about Russia and its international um, importance now, so all, the only Takayev was there. And uh, the uh, breaking news of this uh, economic conference was the moment when a Russian journalist, not journalist, but propagandist, um, Simonyan, she asked uh, Takayev about his point of view on uh, on um, these uh, self-proclaimed um, uh, republics in Donetsk and Lugansk. And Takayev said, sitting close to Putin, that Kazakhstan uh, will never recognize the independence uh, of these republics and it was uh, prime time it was uh, it was without any recording there were no possibility to cut this off so it was a kind of public uh, public humiliation and public uh, um, evidence that Putin is losing his allies even between the closest countries. And Kazakhstan Takayev, when he was talking about this point, he he let know that he was supported by China at that very moment. So Putin is uh, running an extremely uh, pessimistic um, international um, period, in fact. So he has no when we are talking about isolation, so this isolation of Russia is becoming something real. And uh, Takayev is very far from being democratic leader. Um, he's very far from being European uh, or strong uh, country. But uh, it is about that Putin is losing his friends and it's about the weakness of Russia once again. So this is important to to fix that now. Yeah, I think uh, the emotionally it was also visible that Takayev is talking to Putin with the position of very big self-confidence. Uh, either because China is behind or Kazakhstan is really feeling that it can be quite strong. And another point that he said, I think, uh, later in an interview is that he, he downplayed the role of Russia in the events in the previous events in Kazakhstan, uh, and and said this was a role of ODKB rather, so other other countries, which are in this uh, security alliance, uh, so downgrading the role of Russia, even I- including in the way how he got to 
power, how he secured his power. So he was saying, okay, I think the message was, don't think that I'm grateful for you. Don't think that uh, that I owe you something, right? Uh, this is important. And another topic is uh, linked to Lithuania, uh, which also happened the pre- during the previous week when Lithuania, uh, accordingly with European sanctions against Russian Federation, namely about transportation of several uh, types of goods, of services into Kaliningrad, they started to block certain products um, to be transported to Kaliningrad. Kaliningrad historically is a kind of a um, Russian territory, but it has no territorial links with with Russia, so they have to cross uh, the territory of Lithuania and Poland. So and Russians uh, were extremely angry at that very moment. We've heard many official declarations coming from high officials saying that this is a provocation, this is maybe an invitation for an extra uh, period of this war. And uh, and Lithuania is quite courageous at that moment. They are not only doing that with, uh, with railway, they also started this... Um, procedure of cutting off these uh, implementing sanctions implementing sanctions also for for boats uh, coming to Kaliningrad and from Kaliningrad and it creates real problem for Russia because they 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 are in a situation where they could either escalate or just show that they are incapable to do anything and in order to escalate they have to confront a country which is a NATO country. And there are clear signals arriving from NATO that there will be no possibility to do anything they want military with Lithuania. So this is kind that Ukrainian crisis, and everything is linked to Ukraine because sanctions became real after Russian aggression against Ukraine. So this is a kind of enlargement, what we are talking about, the conclusions of the fourth month. So we now we see that there is not happening, things that are not only happening in Ukraine, they, are, they start to happen also around Ukraine. And um, this is also a clear signal for NATO, because when Russia uh, says that they will maybe try to take by force this uh, railway, for example, and to, to, you know, to be able to, to transport their goods, they will be there could be a direct provocation or clash or whatever in this small uh, point of NATO country. That's another answer to the question. What, what Was it good, the enlargement of NATO, was it good or bad? And the naive people, very naive people sitting somewhere very far away, uh, usually they are saying that, look, this is all NATO's fault because Russia is reacting to the NATO's enlargement. She's unhappy with this. And uh, these people, I think, they just don't know the history because uh, history uh, history shows us that in this Central Europe place, the Central Europe space, uh, is extremely fragile. It is historically populated by uh, countries which are not very big, and therefore there is a big temptation to occupy them. And I remember very smart people, by the way. The one of the founders of European integration, uh, Richard von Kudenhofe Kalergi, the Austrian, Austrian diplomat, Austrian aristocrat, when he wrote his Pan Europa in 1922, uh, the text from which very visionary text from which actually uh, the the idea of the European Union after the Second World War arrived, 
and uh, and it is very important that it is arriving from the uh, from the from an Austrian who is reacting to to the collapse of the, of the Habsburg Empire, and he was saying that look, uh, the collapse of the em- this empire creates this um, bunch of nation states, which will be sooner or less conquered by the by the empires, and at that time there were two empires basically. Uh, the the Russian Empire and the emerging German Empire, which he predicted some, some somehow in 1922, he basically predicted the the arrival of Nazism, and he was warning against the new partition of Poland. So it is obvious for me that if uh, NATO did not expand, we would have right now the war in Baltic states, in Poland, in Slovakia or Czech Republic. Uh, in different configurations, by the way, not only in Ukraine. So, of course, Russia will think twice before attacking Lithuania. That's obvious, and therefore maybe even not twice, but many times. Yes, and therefore Lithuania is so is so brave, and that's that's good. And obviously, if if Ukraine did succeed in joining NATO, let's say in late 2000, there will be no war in Donbas, no annexation of Crimea, no this big mess. Yes, and, it, and we are eager to see the results of this uh, EU summit in the late June, so in in a couple of days. Um, and the question there will be also about Ukraine and about the status of Russia, because at that very moment, officially, Russia is the partner of NATO. You mean NATO summit? NATO's NATO summit. I'm talking about NATO summit, which will happen in, in just a, in a couple of days. On Tuesday, 28th. Uh, at the end of June, yes. And uh, the question is uh, whether they will place, NATO countries will recognize that Russia is a, is a threat, officially. And it becomes uh, quite possible, possibility that Russia will be named explicitly as a threat, as an enemy to NATO uh, countries. So historically, we see how things change. And it, this was something we could not imagine even half a year ago. The uh, situation was extremely different. But we see how these Russian aggressions changes things, not only for Ukraine, but also for collective uh, bodies, for, for NATO, for European Union. And um, we are becoming less blind about what Russia is and what it really does. And maybe we will end on the note that uh, Russia intensifies its attacks on Ukraine. This will probably be the the last thing about in this weekly podcast because in these days precisely we see this escalation. Today in the morning there was a, a, a missile strikes uh, on Kiev and uh, a, a multi-store residential building was hit. According to prelim- preliminary information, one person has died, but probably there, there are much more. Uh, we haven't seen the missile strikes against Kyiv residential area for for quite a long time. Uh, it is now repeating. It is now coming back. Yesterday we have seen big strikes on uh, some of the villages across Ukraine, uh, including primarily those villages where Russians are thinking that Ukrainian troops, uh, Ukrainian troops are are basing uh, are being based. And uh, and according to some information, there were 20 missiles sent to a village Desna, uh, not not far away from from us. Uh, and we were actually traveling in the Chernihiv region at the time. We will prepare uh, a podcast about you for for you very soon. But we were very close to to to, to the place. 
so it seems that Russia, Russia is not only is it intensifying the fights in the eastern Ukraine, but it's trying to really intensify missile strikes. Yes, and maybe the last thing uh, we'll tell here, it might be a resp- Russian response to Ukrainian successes in the sea, because during the previous week there were several successes of Ukrainian army uh, uh, who hit uh, island uh, Zmiini several times, and they destroyed a, a huge amount of uh, Russian troops, but also uh, Russian machinery and Russian weapons. And this uh, island is a key place uh, for air defense and for the control of the sea coast and many other things. And uh, also uh, gas um, gas stations in the sea, uh, platforms, platforms, uh, which were Ukrainian before the legal annexation of Crimea in 2014. Uh, So they were captured by Russia and Russia was using these platforms for also military uh, aim and they were destroyed last week. So, And at that very moment, the reaction of Russia was extremely quick and, and they were extremely angry, saying that you, we, we will respond. So these strikes, uh, yesterday only 45 missiles in total against Ukraine, is a huge number, 45 missiles in a, in a one day during one or two hours in the morning and other missiles arriving today to Kiev and also to to other cities, this is about this response of Russia saying that so we will revenge, so just to discourage Ukrainian army to to attack where they can. Yeah, so this was our weekly podcast. So we are trying to summarize the key events of the week. Um, and uh, of course, we have lots of other issues, lots of other episodes in which we are trying to talk about more about the background. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and um, talking to Tityana Harkova, who is Ukrainian scholar and journalist from Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Follow us on social networks, primarily on Twitter, Facebook, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and others. YouTube, uh, and um, if you want to support us, you can do it on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.